Please be seated, please. So we have finished the study of the Lord's Prayer, but we've not finished the series. And that's because, as we've seen, if you really want to understand any passage of Scripture well, it's always worth looking at the other passages around it before we close our Bibles. So let's open them together, Matthew chapter 6. There is no need for the ribbon system today. It's officially the summer, so we'll just take it easy and do one reading or whatever. Bit of a break. Matthew 6, we're going to focus on this. As you look at Matthew 6, you see that in the original context, the Lord's Prayer is not the point of Matthew 6. It's more of a side point or or maybe more of an example to a much bigger main point that Jesus is making here. And as you look at Matthew 6, verse 1, that is the point. Beware, he says, of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. That's the main point. And when Jesus says this word, beware, that is like a warning sign. You know, pay attention, something is up. It is like the dashboard on my old Buick. It's just lit up with lots of different symbols, triangles, exclamation marks, flashing lights. Warning! Pay attention, look out, be alert. Something is brewing. It's going to blow up. You are at risk, says Jesus. You are at risk. Uh Uh-oh, that's right. (laughs) That is the right response. You are at risk of doing Christian things in a non-Christian way. That's the danger here. That's the hazard. You are at risk, says Jesus, Matthew 6, 1. Beware of being insincere. Then, having made the point, what he does is simply lays out three systematic examples of the point, one of which is the Lord's Prayer. You see the exact same form of words in verses 2, 5, and 16. Glance at them, 2, 5, 16. When you give, when you pray, when you fast. So Jesus assumes that we all will do all of these things. And he just says, beware of doing them for the wrong reason. Take them in turn, these examples. Look at verse 2. When you give to the needy, I'm sure you will, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets. Now, they didn't actually do this. There are no historical records of people blowing a trumpet when they gave money. So I think Christ is being provocatively absurd here. Just imagine having you know, a brass band turn up and play every single time you gave a dollar to somebody. It's ridiculous. You know, I'll get the bill. Just let me speed dial my traveling mariachi before I do. You know, dollar going in. You know, it's, it's, it's silly. It, it's like, uh, you know, something off that Pink Panther cartoon or something. It's cartoonish, it's, it's childish, it's embarrassingly absurd to drive home the point. And then having softened them all up with some silliness, suddenly he gets serious and he says the word truly. Amen. In Greek and Aramaic. Amen. It's uh, what he says when he means something is verily true and serious. Truly I say to you, seriously I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, which I assume you will, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
using both humor and hyperbole now. Jesus says, let your giving be so discreet that even your left hand won't know what your right hand is doing. Even parts of your own body will be unaware of what the other parts are doing. It's another exaggerated phrase to drive home the point. What it does not mean is that you just close your eyes when the church plate comes round and you drag out whatever is in your pocket and dump it in, you know, used tissue paper, pocket knife and a few coins. We know that's not true because 2 Corinthians 9 says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. So clearly Christian giving is is a thought-through thing. It's not just done absent-mindedly, but Christ's point is it is possible perhaps to think about it too much. It's possible to do something as normative as giving a Christian thing in an unchristian way, to show off through basic acts of obedience and draw attention to what you're doing. In fact, the fact that he says beware and Matthew 6 lights up like the dashboard of a 2005 Buick LeSabre custom, it tells you, doesn't it, that there's not just a possibility we'll make a mistake here. This thing has been from the rust belt of Pennsylvania its whole life. It's guaranteed to blow up. We are at risk of showing off with our basic Christian behavior, giving. That's the main point, of course. The second point is prayer. Another example, another point or illustration uh, or application of the same point. And uh, I just want to say that that Jesus dealing with prayer here ought to be an encouragement for those of us, any of us here, who have struggled with prayer. And uh, maybe you felt like you don't pray enough or you don't pray well enough or, you know, you're not as good as you've heard someone else do it. And Uh, The comfort from Jesus is, he says, as he did with the giving, when you pray. He just assumes we all will. He must know we're not all eloquent. But he believes that we will all try. So Jesus says that you don't need long words. You don't need, you know, good words. You don't need loud words. You don't even need these words. He says, pray like this. Not pray this. Pray like this. Pray a prayer like this one. It's simple. It's short. It's sweet. It's subtle. It's sincere. Pray in your own words, in your own way, in your own time. What is the Lord's Prayer like? Well, in verse 9, Jesus says, Our Father. That itself is absolutely enormous. To describe the God of the universe, the creator and the sustainer of all things, who knew you before you were born and knows every hair on your head, whose name is hallowed or holied and and is to be blessed and used reverently and carefully, as being at the same time in the same breath, someone as equally proximate and, and loving and tender to us as a father is, as Tracy said, a radical thing. The opening words, our Father, tell us that uh, through our brother Christ, now Christ's Father is our Father. And if you turn that around for a minute and think about it, what that also means is that God views you as his son or his daughter. God treats you and views you and thinks of you every bit as the same way as he thinks about his own son, Jesus Christ. He looks at you and sees Jesus. We look at him 
and see our Father. So we don't pray this prayer to impress him. We don't pray a prayer like this to get God's attention or make him love us. We pray because we already have it and he already does. He's already our Father, so let's talk to him. Dwell with it for a moment. Think about this image of a father, a really good one. And picture what a good father does. Their child, let's say their child, falls over in the church playground and and cuts their leg badly. And the father, could be one of us, is, is right here in the church lobby talking to their friends. And the father in the church lobby looks over to the playground and he, he sees the fuss, he sees the noise, he sees the blood, he sees the tears, and he sees the gaggle of other horrified children looking on, wondering how good this one really is. Is the father, as he sees this unfold, just standing there, shaking his head with exasperation? Is he heartless and, and thinking, I don't know what that is, but I'm not interested in whatever's going on out there. Or is the father confused by this scene? Is the father, as he sees an artery rupture and blood spray up the, the swings, thinking, well, I don't know what's going on over there. As the child approaches and hyperventilates and in that childish way tries to explain what's going on and goes, well, <laughs> tries to get out their words. Is the father just thinking, well, I'm sorry, but this is not at all a coherent narrative that I have before me right now. And your leg's a mess, you've sprayed it around the narthex, your hair's a mess, your face is a mess, you're crying, and as for your diction, what an appalling thing. You know, your grammar as well, there's a preposition at the end of your sentence, and I'm pretty sure you split an infinitive in there somewhere. Tell you what, come back in 10 or 15 years when you've got a good job and a master's degree in English, and then ask for some help in a more appropriate way, will you? Or... Is the father thinking, yes, this is my time. You know, 99 times they run to mum. For whatever reason, in this occasion, they have said, dad, yep, I am ready. I've been waiting for this my whole life. My little girl is bleeding out there and she wants daddy. I'm in. What is a good father thinking? Our father. We could do a hundred sermons on these two words alone and merely scratch the surface of the essence of what it means to call the sovereign of the universe father and know that when we need him, he is waiting and has been waiting a long time and he won't just sit there waiting but will run out towards us wanting to heal and love. Our father. Our Father is the King. Our Father is the Judge, says the Lord's Prayer. Uh, We pray to our Father as King and Judge that he would end the world and bring about his perfect kingdom rule now where there are no more tears and no more accidents and injuries. Uh, And yet we also pray to the Lord if he doesn't, if he tarries and does not return this evening, God, when we wake up tomorrow, would this world look just a little bit more like you have come back already? And Lord, would you use me and my resources for that purpose, Father? Please sustain me today. I will worry all about tomorrow, tomorrow. And uh, I'll be back tomorrow for more. And please forgive me. And please help me to forgive other people. And remind me, Lord, would you, that no matter what they've done to me, I've done worse to you. And would you lead me into something new? 
Would you take me out of that old sin pit where I was alone and my only friend was Satan, constantly whispering to me about all the things I'd done and how I was not good enough? And would you deliver me from that place into a place of assurance of your love and salvation into your arms of grace, Father? Amen. That's the prayer. Pray like this. Now, uh, liturgically, or as Microsoft Word would correct it, liturgically, because they're not Anglicans at Microsoft. They have a longer ending, don't we? Have you noticed how it just conks out in Scripture and it's not what we say in church? The power, the glory, that bit. We heard last week, of course, that the addition is biblical. It comes from the first lesson last week, First Chronicles 29, uh, the power and the glory. But whether you add that bit or, or not, that is it. That is the simple prayer. It is done. It's just a few lines long. It really is that simple. We pray it for his glory because it is his power. And then we're done. It is sincere. Exactly the same with the third example, verse 16. And when you fast. Uh, just a side point. Uh, do you note the symmetry in these three passages? There's a couple of you nodding. You see uh, verse 2, when you give, don't give like the hypocrites. And then you see verse 5, when you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites. Verse 16, when you fast, don't fast like the hypocrites. Do you see that the clear symmetry in these three passages, they're clearly examples of one main point, the way it's structured. And let's make a side point to the side point. Do you remember who the hypocrites were that we looked at in, in week one of the series, that the hypocrites were the play actors of the day, weren't they? Who, who would stand up on a stage wearing a mask for all to see, pretending to have certain feelings on the stage, but of course inside, behind the scenes and behind closed doors, the real them, the actor behind the mask, frequently felt something else. The literal word hypocrite is the metaphorical word insincere. Don't give and pray and fast like an actor. Beware of doing Christian things in an unchristian way. Now, I've shared this before, but it's an endless source of great sermon illustrations. Cat used to be a nanny to a Hollywood family, and uh, that meant that the, the homes that they had in nice places, she would get to, to share apartment buildings with famous people and meet other actors and things at the house and on, at the studio quite often, and uh, consistently... Uh, she got to find out who they really were, these famous people, and what they're really like. And she found out that uh, one of the main baddies in the movie series The Hunger Games, in real life, is one of the nicest people you will ever meet. And this person was around the house all the time. It was a best friend of the family. So uh, it turns out that Kat learned a lot about her. And uh, when she is not presiding over a dystopian and murderous regime, her favorite hobby is bird watching. That's lovely, isn't it? You know, who'd have thought someone running District 1 would like bird watching? She's just, <laughs> she's just really nice. Just a lovely human. Her email, I, can't, I won't give it away. Actually, that's not fair, is it? Because you'll email her. Um, but it's got something to do with bird watching. So she's a really, really nice person. And I think Christ is saying, you know, in that same way, we do know this, that our actors, when they play a thing on screen, are not always playing themselves, but a part. Christ is saying, you know, don't play a part with your Christianity. Don't put on a mask. 
don't be, you know, it's really the opposite of my illustration, but don't be super duper nice on the, on the silver screen and then behind closed doors be a complete snake. Be sincere. Now I want you to pay attention because we're about to start the sermon. We've got to the passage of the day. Verse 16. Uh, verse 16 says, When you fast, do not look gloomy or sullen or angry-faced, angry-visaged, like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. It seems that, that lots of people, like hypocrites, are making a public show of all of their private acts of obedience. And as a part of the penitential, solemn act of fasting, they were elaborately smearing their heads with dirt and soil and ash and so that everybody in the community could see what they were doing and walking around like this, looking hungry and, and foul. And I guess the idea is simple, like the, like the giving of coins with the trumpet and like the, like the praying on the street corners, arms aloft. If they just messed themselves up enough, everyone would know that they were fasting. And of course, fasting is what very holy people do and we all need to be impressed. Truly I say to you, says Jesus, they have received their reward. What is their reward? Well, people are impressed. Congratulations. It won't last. But when you fast, he says, anoint your head and wash your face. Don't filthy it up, but wash it. Anoint it as well. Scriptural authority here for the proposition that we should all go to Nordstrom and buy some expensive face cream. Or, if you wish to add a zero to the bill, a face creme. Because if you say it in French, you can charge more, can't you? Incidentally, we were in there the other day. Someone offered to let me try a new aftershave. Of course, it had another French name. The lady there said, try this, sir. It's called Parisian Marketplace. I said, well, clearly you've not been there. <laughs> the combined smell of cheese, overripe melons, and raw sewage is not something I want to spray on my face. There's a little bit of, it wouldn't be a sermon, would it, without a dig at the French? Just, just wouldn't take. I think that's how the spirit works. Um, there's just a bit of deliberate self-care here. It's not a makeover that Christ is prescribing here. It's not a best look. It's not the most expensive thing you can put on and a trip to the lash barn or something like that. It's just a normal look. Christ says when you do a normal thing like fasting, have a normal face will you? Have a wash. The, the fasting is, is meant to be private. It's meant to be modest. It's meant to be normal or normative. And so uh, that means when we do it, we shouldn't draw attention to it. When Catherine and I fast, we, we often have a drink of water uh, throughout the day so that we don't, you know, have a smelly mouth because no one wants to be in a conversation with someone with fast mouth. Yeah, fast mouth, it smells smells like a deviled egg. It's an awful stench. And that's another subject. Um, it's private. Yeah. yeah I, well, I've seen, I'm, I'm aware, Stu, that there's, there's quite a pile of the things uh, building up in the parish hall, like a sort of blockage in a French drain. And uh, that, again, is another sermon. Fasting is private. Let's, let's go back to Scripture. Fasting is a private thing. It's a solemn thing. In fact, it's so private that some people wonder whether we really even do it anymore. Yeah, we do. It's like giving. It's like praying. It's a normal thing. The question is not whether we'll give and pray and fast, but how. 
Will we be sincere? Will we do it vulnerably and honestly and quietly? Fasting is all about vulnerability. You know, what we do in the simple act of denying ourselves food is we remind ourselves of our dependence upon God even for the basics in life. And the time that we save in not preparing food or buying food or eating food we can use to pray and those little pangs of hunger that you get during the day or a bit of acid reflux, it's just enough to remind you like a pop-up or an alert on your phone, pray. So you fire off a hundred tiny little arrow prayers. God, I remember that thing. Oh, I'm hungry. I remember that thing. God, I remember that thing. And you just do it over and over again. Each prayer simple and, you know, it's not eloquent. It's just maybe naming one word. Lent, uh, I think, is a time when people give things up. The Lenten fast. Uh, Our vestry has fasted. Groups have fasted for healing and uh, hiring of staff for church finances, the conversion of the lost, the restraint of, of troublesome people harming the flock. We've fasted for all sorts of things. We've seen all sorts of answers. The women's group fasted for a lady who had undergone horrific surgery and Uh, Dr. Becky, who showed us uh, all about that and God is praying for this lady, she said she declared the answer to this prayer to be a miracle. She said medically the answer to this prayer and fasting is is almost impossible to explain. Fasting, it works. According to Justin Martyr, the early church father, the catechumens, people getting ready uh, to be baptized were accustomed to fast before baptism and the whole church joined them you know that bit in baptism where we say we will and we all join with the baptismal candidate it was a a group thing that the body did together a little bit after this the synod of hippo in the late fourth century uh, agreed that people should always fast from food before receiving holy communion that was stupid because holy communion of course was instituted within the context of a meal and biblically always practiced within the context of a meal. But although it was a bit of a mistake, you can't fault the heart. They were trying to to demonstrate sincerity. They were trying to to make it regular, to fast as often as they feast at the table, and they were trying to show how serious they were about Jesus, and that can only be a good thing. Giving away very substantial parts of our income talking to God all day long in our own words and occasionally denying ourselves a little bit of scram is such a normal thing to do that it shouldn't even raise an eyebrow. Of course, the irony is that we've taken these normative Christian practices and we've made them exceptional. And we've become overly impressed, I think, with people who do basic acts of obedience. And that means that we must be in danger, warning, of falling into the very trap of which Christ calls us to beware. We are often too impressed with big givers. In many churches, you know, who's the big giver? It's the question. Oh, you know, they're a big giver. We're too impressed with who they are. They get an enhanced vote. We're very impressed with powerful prayers. Well, you know, they're always at the meeting and they've always got the right words and the theology. We're very impressed with those who fast. They must, they must be a monk who does that. It's insane. These are not marks of maturity. They are marks of membership. So be sincere. Let me apply the point as we close the series out. As I apply the point, 
to share with you now, I think, what is one of the most awful things that I've heard for some time. Uh, Kat, a little while ago, was at the grocery store, and she was talking to the lady at the flower kiosk uh, down there in Giant Eagle. And it was a Saturday. It was a very nice day. And Kat said to the lady there, it's a shame that you have to work today. And the lady said, well, it's not too bad because at least I'm off tomorrow on Sunday. And Kat assumed that she was making a sort of Christian connection here and that the lady you know, was saying, you know, because I, I can go to church or something, have a Sabbath. And, and so Kat asked why the lady was happy about not working Sunday. To our collective shame, the lady said something that should absolutely cut you to the heart. She said, I have it written down. I am glad I'm not working tomorrow because that's when the church people come in. And I see your faces in this small room of, like, what? <laughs> eh? Confusion and, and slight disgust. Certainly see embarrassment, a lot of that, and, and denial. I see, I see your facial expressions. I'm the storyteller. My wife is the story holder. This is true. And the worst part of the week that the staff at our local grocery store all know to avoid is Sunday because that is when the Christians come in. Just dressed up enough to let them know where they've been. And they come in and they behave in a way that is notably worse than anyone else. We've brought shame to Christ. Now, in absolute fairness, I don't think this is Christ church, people. Pretty convinced it's the Presbyterians. <laughs> but this is where we are as a church. Whoa. You know, I'm reading Matthew 6, 1. Don't let, you know, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. I'm thinking, Lord, if only we could show off. If only we could go down to Giant Eagle and practice our acts of righteousness before people in order to be seen. That would be an improvement upon practicing our sin in front of them. But this is where we are now as a community. This is where the reputation of Christ is in these United States. The Christians are thought of as default being the bad guys. That is the hill we now have to climb just to get to moral neutrality before any of us can share the good news of Jesus Christ. That's where we are. And it's no wonder that Christ says to us, beware, warning, the risk is not just possible but probable. It's easy to slip up. When we're stressed, when we're tired, when we're running late and we've been to church and we have an event coming up and we just have the time to pop between the two and we've got two cars and lots of kids and many things to do, it's so easy just to come in and kind of let maybe some of our old Adamic flesh show. We are a mixed bag, people of God, a people of grace, a people of sin, a people of justice, a people of forgiveness. We are a mixed bag, and it's sometimes easy under stress to let the wrong bits of it show, and Jesus knows. Beware. Of course, the Lord's Prayer is a call, one of three examples, to do something about that, to run to a father who forgives and the more we run to a father who forgives, the more likely we are to draw people to a father who forgives. Be simple, be subtle, and above all, be sincere. Amen.